Hi, everybody. Welcome to Twig 50. Today we are covering, actually, we're going to be very aggressive here and try to get, get through six articles. But the first is PUBG becomes first mobile battle royale to surpass 1 billion in revenue by gamesindustry.biz. Uh, the second and third have to do with Mario Kart. The first of those is expectations are sky high for Nintendo's latest Mario mobile game, analyst says by CNBC. And then Mario Kart Tour's $4.99 monthly subscription fee is out of touch with reality by Polygon. The next article is one I'm sure Eric's going to comment a lot about, which is Call of Duty Modern Warfare, expected to be U.S. best-selling title of 2019. After that, we're covering how Garena's Free Fire competes with Fortnite and PUBG Mobile. And finally, Tencent will become Funcom's largest shareholder. So today on the podcast, we have myself, uh, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, and uh, Eric Kress, but we also have a special guest, Damien Kim, who is Director of Gaming at Facebook for China. Hey, Damien, how's it going? It's good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm pretty pretty stoked about it, but hoping I don't screw it up. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. Is there still gaming at Facebook? <laughs> there I is in, that was in a, a few thing. forms. <laughs> we still got we still got Canvas. We still got the web game business. It's, right, it's, right. Uh, it's kicking around. We have a few other things too. So yeah. Uh, and so Damien, can you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of your background and kind of what you're doing at Facebook? Uh, sure. So um, as far as myself, I'm originally from the States. I grew up in that little slice of Midwest heaven known as Michigan. Um, but I've been living in Singapore for uh, about nine years. Um, I spent about a decade at Microsoft uh, in the more traditional tech. I was on the uh, the Windows and kind of PC OEM side of things uh, before I joined Facebook about five years ago. Um, honestly, with no experience in digital media or gaming, so um, definitely uh, still kind of an industry noob uh, as it relates to that. Um, in terms of the team uh, and the business that I work on at Facebook, um, we... We partner with game developers and publishers primarily on their, their marketing and UA, um, since that's kind of the main solution that we have for gaming. Uh, my team in particular uh, works with Chinese game companies and studios that are looking to export games outside of China. Um, and China itself is, is probably the, the largest gaming ecosystem in the world. So uh, it's a pretty wild uh, market to operate in. And, and uh, it's definitely been a business that's been growing rapidly over the last few years. Um, and then overall, uh, kind of to, to Eric's point on uh, on Facebook and gaming generally, um, we still have uh, the web platform. Uh, we got instant games and HTML5. We have uh, a few things coming up uh, that we're looking at with cloud and 5G. And then we have Oculus um, and kind of the bigger bets in AR and VR. So gaming is still alive at Facebook. I would say it's uh, starting to kind of come back and uh, into a sort of a heyday. Um, but we will obviously see how that goes over the next couple of years. Well, most importantly, can you get me a discount on the Quest? <laughs> I, I can really try. I can up. try and work that out for All you. Right. Very cool. And then, in terms of updates, uh, I've got a quick update. So I, I spent the last week in Colombia, in Bogota, and uh, if uh, I actually did a recap of my trip there. So if anyone wants to go to GameMakers.com, you can see my video of the Columbia 4.0 conference. And then just another request from our audience. So we actually want to start uh, developing some more uh, podcasts on specific topics. And so we've got a bunch of ideas that we'd like to work on, but also just want to hear from the audience. If you have any thoughts, please let me know on 
Twitter or LinkedIn or however you want to contact me, but um, we, we definitely uh, are excited to uh, start developing more podcasts as well. Adam, I know you've got an update. Yeah. Um, so for Rush Wars, Supercell, uh, we covered it, I think, a couple of weeks back and um, trying to keep up to date with them as well as a few other games that we've been following. Interesting big update came out on September 18th, and now we have just over a little over a week of data to kind of see how that went through. Um, big things that they did, uh, they overhauled their core gameplay f- specifically to kind of address that that kind of like shallow strategy issue. To try to address it, what they did was actually randomized unit loadout. Um, so you don't have full control over your uh, loadout going into each match, into each round, um, to avoid players actually sticking to the same strategies, both in, on the attacking and the defending side. Um, this has been, you know, it's an interesting take. My, my thing is it's a bit of a cover-up to some of the deeper problems in the unit strategy, <laughs> uh, but still something to actually keep moving forward in terms of addressing that shallow strategy. Um, and then on top of that, uh, pre-rolled loot boxes. So before you could actually see all the contents of a loot box before you bought it, now they've replaced them with fully blind loot boxes. Um, the update has been live since September 18th, and you can actually see the grossing rank. Um, they they jumped up. There was definitely a temporary revenue increase, but um, it's gone back down since then, um, or at least trending downwards. So it looks like Rush Wars will be a similar battle as Brawl Stars, uh, that there's still systemic problems underneath that they're going to have to be um, you know, continually updating. So cheering on for Supercell, but it looks like there's going to be quite a battle for Rush Wars. All right, let's jump right in. So the first article, PUBG becomes first mobile battle royale to surpass 1 billion in revenue. And so with this article, um, it talks about since re-releasing as Game for Peace, PUBG Mobile has seen a 540% increase in mobile revenue. So originally in May of, of this year, Tencent actually pulled the game from China after months of not being able to monetize the game due to government restrictions. But after re-releasing, Tencent got the approval from the government to monetize the game in China. And at least according to Sensor Tower for August 2018, the monthly revenue for PUBG Mobile was $25 million per month. So that was last year. But over the last year has increased to $160 million. So pretty huge uh, increase in, in, in terms of monthly revenue. And um, most of the growth is due to Game for Peace and because of the China market. But PUBG Mobile on its own, even outside of Game for Peace, accounted for uh, $63 million of revenue per month with a growth of about 152% over a year ago. On the flip side, uh, Fortnite iOS revenue has actually been falling, which is down 36% over the past year to $25 million per month. In addition, there has also been a massive influx of installs with 45 million new installs in August, which is up from 21 million in July. So certainly over the last years, there's been a big increase in revenue and then very recently, a very large increase in installs. And since we actually have Damien here on the call with us, who is focused on the China market and understands China gaming extremely well, um, I want to, Damien, ask you a few questions. Uh, The first is, you know, can you give us a better idea of what, you know, some of these Chinese re- restrictions on games looks like for the country? And then what gets approved and disapproved, generally speaking, and uh, how long does it take to get something approved? Sure. So uh, the Chinese government regulations basically about a, a, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, so March 2018, um, essentially the government decides to spend licensing for video games without a lot of notice. Um, 
they believe that they wanted to, or the, this is believed to have been just because they wanted to change how um, they were managing and kind of controlling games as a form of content. Um, and it was kind of around the time Honor of Kings was just on that epic rise. Um, it was kind of being declared a bit of like a national addiction or a problem and, and all of that. Um, essentially what happened is over the kind of course of eight or nine months, um, what the government then came out with was essentially two agencies uh, that managed the licensing approvals. Uh, one actually reviews the content itself to ensure that it is uh, kind of consistent with Chinese values. Uh, and then one that approves the commercial license, which allows the game itself to monetize. Um, it's pretty tricky because um, as things tend to be with China and kind of regulation from the government, uh, it's not always clear exactly, you know, what's okay and what's not okay. Uh, it's a bit of a black box and that seems to be somewhat by design. In terms of Chinese values, um, you know, most of that likely indexes toward like less violent content and less gore, less sexualized types of content. Um, but as of right now, it's hard to say like how long these things take. Um, there's a pretty huge backlog uh, of content or, or titles that are in the queue um, from, from basically when they suspended things. It's creating a lot of challenges for, for smaller developers uh, versus a Tencent or NetEase who really kind of know how to navigate uh, that type of environment. Um, and the rules aren't any different for local companies or, or really for Western companies. It actually would probably be even more challenging um, for Western countries or Western companies to, to figure out how to kind of get through this. Um, so that's kind of where they're at. Right, so Demon, it kind of sounds like what they're really trying to do is look out for like consumer protections to your point. So if, you know, if it's too violent or if it's too addictive then they're gonna start uh, clamping down, is that fair to say? Yeah, um, and it's, it's also just kind of how pervasive gaming is uh, in terms of the time spent and kind of like everyone is playing games in China if you go uh, to China, you look around anywhere. I mean, it's kids, it's adults. Um, and so I think when you think about like kind of content controls and, and making sure that the government kind of has oversight on that, I think games has just come through, especially mobile games have come through uh, as something that uh, they just needed to pay closer attention to and they wanted to have more control over. All right, cool. I mean, it kind of sounds like the restrictions aren't, are actually, you know, kind of coming from a good place and actually, the objective is, is, is actually good, although you know, it might have some impact on commercial potential. But, I think you're uh, giving them way benefit of the doubt on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it kind of depends on who you talk to and uh, yeah. Yeah, what is getting approved and who's doing it. But, um, I, um, but yeah. my understanding, there's a huge political element, you know, as long as Trump is bashing and, and, and creating issues with China and China's economy and that the people of China are, are generally upset with America, that it's going to get less and less likely to, of Western games getting approval over their Chinese counterparts. Is that somewhat true or is that? Yeah, I mean, the, the update and the kind of the regulation happened before all of this stuff really flared up. Um, I actually think Western content, I mean, a lot of it depends on um, who's kind of partnering with uh, the companies like uh, Call of Duty, as an example. I mean, Tencent is developing that game uh, and they will be the ones publishing that game uh, for the China market. But it's not coming uh, out in China, right? Uh, not, it's coming I mean, not only yet. in the West, right? I mean, related to that, actually, the, I mean, it, this is not a Western title, but PUBG Mobile. So this whole thing with Game, game for Peace was actually because PUBG 
is a Korean IP. Um, so yeah. there's a lot of controversy yeah. around that. So there's definitely, uh, you know, kind of uh, an element of that. Uh, but we're hearing that Diablo is having issues even with NetEase as a partner. Um, so I, if, if it's, uh, you know, before it was not invented here type thing for the consumers of China is my, my opinion generally. Um, but now the government's kind of getting involved, approving what they feel is appropriate for their market. And yeah. based upon, you know, these whole, these, all these trade issues and the, and the economy getting impacted by that, it seems less and less likely that Western content, or at least um, more broadly, or the bigger games are going to get approved anytime soon. But um, yeah. that's kind of the assumption that I'm under. And those controls are certainly there, right? I mean, they can, they have the control to do that and they have the power to do that. So, yeah. All right, second question, Damien. So for some of the folks in our audience who aren't that familiar with Tencent and are not familiar with just how big a deal Tencent is in China, um, can you help, you know, some of us, uh, or can you characterize just how powerful Tencent is in China and kind of talk about the role, you know, not only as a games company, but also as a distribution platform and also as a, you know, key investor in almost essentially every market in China. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to have a kind of an analogy for this, but Tencent, um, I mean, they're, they're the, the largest technology company in China. Um, they're kind of like if we had, I don't know, in the US or in the Western markets, we have an equivalent, but it's like if there was a massive gaming company, but then it's also like kind of the Google side of things from a platform and distribution perspective. Um, it's a bit of Facebook um, because they own uh, WeChat. Uh, which is the dominant social network slash sort of uh, messaging platform. Um, and they also are allowed to kind of use all of these pieces that they control um, to their advantage in ways that um, probably wouldn't, um, you know, necessarily be as they would, they wouldn't be as free to do that um, in kind of a, a more, you know, open market environment. So, Look, they're between Tencent and Netties, something like 60 to 70% of all gaming revenue in China flows through uh, to one of those two companies. Um, any small indie game or smaller game studio that has a game has to work with Tencent largely if they want to kind of break through. And that's both for distribution. They have the number one Android app store. So the Tencent My App Store. Um, again, they, they own the, uh, the digital marketing in the UA. Um, so pretty much, I mean, if you, if you want to kind of be in games and be big, I mean, in some shape or form, uh, you're really going to have to work with Tencent or NetEase, uh, to, to do anything. Right. And then in terms of game for peace itself, like how entrenched do you think that game is? Like how much of a chance do you think, you know, Fortnite's not there yet, but can they actually get into China? And then for other games like Apex, you know, what, what kind of odds would you get for some of these other uh, you know, similar games to actually crack the Chinese market? You know, if I'm, you know, guessing on my side, I mean, I would say it's, you know, they're, they're pretty well entrenched. I think to Eric's point, I mean, um, you know, Fortnite, I mean, PUBG mobile itself was doing extremely well. Um, and they, because they didn't have the commercial license and, and largely it, it was very unlikely that they were going to get the commercial license um, they couldn't monetize. So essentially they were operating this game with, you know, probably a hundred million plus daily actives at a loss indefinitely um, until they kind of pulled it back, reskinned it, make sure that it was kind of compliant uh, and push that back out. So honestly, like 
Fortnite, there was, you know, a lot of conversations about how Fortnite was going to come in with Apex and Call of Duty. I think also those IPs are just less popular. Um, you know, they're, they're not as in demand. So I don't, you know, if my prediction would be, you know, Game for Peace, again, backed by Tencent with the head start that they have. I mean, I don't, I don't see them really being challenged very much. But again, the interesting thing will be, you know, if COD comes in or if Fortnite comes in with a with a Tencent, even though Game for Peace is published by Tencent, Tencent has no issues with their teams competing with each other. Um, so they'll let them go at it uh, and kind of just survival the fittest and see who who does the best. So you know that would probably be the only you know potential scenario where one of these games does break through is essentially a competing team from within Tencent um, brings it in and, and goes hard at it. Got it. All right, and then Eric and Adam, uh, it'd be great to hear your thoughts and also just, you know, why do you think PUBG Mobile has been kicking so much ass over the past year? And then what do you guys, do you guys have any thoughts on on sort of the, the decline of Fortnite? Eric? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just going to reiterate what he said is that since it was released in China under the Games for Peace um, skew, I suppose, you know, they basically almost more than doubled their monthly revenue. So, and that's just, we're just tracking iOS that we don't even tracking Android in China. So it's even larger than that. So I think, I mean, it's just a huge growth for them in China. It's doing really well in the U S too, of course. Um, I think that the skew is amazing. Um, but, uh, and I don't see them seeing any competition from anything else. I mean, the fact that Fortnite's not in China is kind of a testimony to the fact that they're not going to put Western content in China or apex or call of duty. I mean, I think they're just gonna have a lot of challenges until this stuff is resolved. Um, politically you know Fortnite. i mean we talked to a lot of people about this decline this last season i mean basically there was a couple fundamental things with Fortnite. one is that it was a very unpopular season um because a lot of unbalance with the mechs which debalanced the game and um they removed this fast building feature which pissed off all the the, the core guys that love to kill you know the noobs um but i think the other thing was a lot of the influencers moved on right so Guys like Laser Beam ended up starting to play Minecraft and crap like that, right? Um, and then Ninja going to Mixer, I don't think helped them either, right? So I'm sure he got paid, but like his his viewership went far, far lower. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like it's just dramatically less. And so without the zeitgeist around him playing this game, you know, incessantly, I think uh, that was probably part of why it's not as popular um, recently. What else? I think just overall, it was just a terrible season <laughs> for them. And uh, and they are, hopefully they'll come back in season two. I'm not, the next season, I'm not counting them out. You know, they may get the back. Oh, and the other thing was back to school, right? Just so happened to coincide with back to school. So all these kids can't play anymore. So at the end of the day, I, I think they come back, but I do think this is an opportunity and we'll get to it later for things like Call of Duty and other games this holiday. I think we're seeing some upticks in both FIFA and Madden, et cetera, and then NBA because I think the players are coming back to uh, more of the traditional games um, and away from Fortnite over the last couple of months. So we, we will see. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, I would actually be holding off on a lot of these Fortnite comparisons until September season 11 actually launches. Um, yeah, just because notoriously the revenue actually is going to be dipping seasonally, uh, especially near the end of a season. Um, so we might act, not actually be comparing apples to apples here, but regardless, I'm actually quite excited over the next couple months with all of these, um, uh, 
uh, you know, battle Royale types of games coming out and trying to compete in this fall season. So you've got Fortnite coming out with a new map. Apex just has a major seasonal revamp, including a new map. And of course, Call of Duty launches, Call of Duty launches. So this will be pretty, pretty epic. Um, yeah, uh, in terms of like why PUBG Mobile has done so well, um, I think we've covered this quite a bit in the past, but I would say like one big key element is just how like industry leading PUBG Mobile is. Not PUBG as, as a game, especially on PC console, but PUBG Mobile is actually top of the class in terms of their live ops framework, right? Like new game modes, their battle passes, their overall competitive framework. Like they are throwing so much into this game uh, at the level that competes, if not better than Epic and Fortnite. Um, so their ability to retain those players is, is top notch. So anybody who's looking at, you know, how to build these types of competitive frameworks and live ops, like Epic and uh, PUBG Mobile are definitely the, the two to look at. Just the one quick comment on that is the number of people that Tencent is putting on PUBG Mobile, um, the teams are building out now locally uh, to support a lot of the esports that they're trying to, to bring out uh, with this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen like the partnerships that they're doing. They just uh, announced one with Amazon Prime. Um, they're doing stuff with Bathing Ape. I mean, like just China and the way Tencent operates, they can throw so many people uh, at these major titles uh, and it becomes pretty tough to compete at the scale that they operate. And that's just, I mean, that's for everything, right? That's for China and they're just printing cash uh, with these major titles in China, but it's also, you know, globally, they're just, they're setting up these shops uh, really everywhere, like in the Middle East, in the US, uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're backing this and they're looking at this uh, long-term. Cool. All right, should we move on? Let's do it. It's time to talk about the, the big game of sure. September. Um, so I'm actually gonna combine two different articles into one uh, so we can try to hit everything today. Uh, first article are that expectations are sky high for Nintendo's latest Mario Mobile game. Uh, that would be Mario Kart Tour. Um, and secondly, Mario Kart Tour's $4.99 monthly subscription fee is out of touch with reality. And that article is from Polygon. So if you haven't heard the news, Mario Kart Tour launched September 25th, and it's obviously Nintendo's biggest mobile launch really to date. Um, Mario Kart is actually Nintendo's biggest brand. Um, it's actually their number one game on Switch, beating out Mario Odyssey and Smash Bros, interestingly. Um, but when we look at this game, accurate download and revenue numbers are going to be hard to come by. Um, Apptopia, Sensor Tower, App Annie are all actually showing different things. And it's just due to the nature of how they triangulate these things um, and trying to figure out how the game on the absolute top is doing without the actual data from that developer um, is pretty difficult. Um, so, yeah, like 10 million downloads reported within the first 24 hours. That was by Aptopia. Then Sensor Tower came back and said, nope, that's actually 20 million. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how the numbers actually shape up as they um, try to do corrections. Sensor Tower right now, um, checking yesterday, had it at about 70 million downloads and about 5.2 million in revenue so far. So in terms of downloads, of course, that's incredible. Um, that's outpacing actually even Pokemon Go. Um, but of course, in terms of revenue, uh, you would have hoped that to be stronger. But um, as JK's mentioned in the past, just looking at this genre, um, actually, the actual dollars per download, the, the RPI for this is actually pretty comparable to most um, 
kart uh, racing style games. Which basically means it's a freaking disaster, right? Let's be honest. Come on. I mean, this is just like epic fail, right? All right, sorry. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Get into that, Eric. Come on. <laughs> Eric is really jumping the gun here. I'm chomping at the bit here. <laughs> but of course, it's had an actually very, very rocky launch. Uh, the controls are actually so bad that it's become an internet meme. Um, I've actually had a lot of fun reading some of these articles about it. Um, get, the game's actually getting ripped apart because of its fake multiplayer, where it just kind of puts a fake account names on all the other racers, um, but you're just racing against bots. Um, and the way that the game is structured is that it's actually just quite linear. It's just kind of a saga model where you just keep beating the next race. Each race is actually pretty easy to beat. Um, and the actual progression is pretty light. Um, so as you'd expect, um, MTX backlash from uh, Nintendo fans is definitely um, very, very high. But the big question mark is around this $5 subscription, which actually unlocks a race mode, uh, 200cc, which is the fastest mode within the game, as well as increases your earn rate as you progress. So while it's actually similar to a battle pass, plus you know locking out this, this mode, to be honest, it's actually a far less effective way just based on communication. It just doesn't feel like an actual battle pass. Um, but regardless, um, looking at these numbers, looking at how players are going, even though the, the game is actually doing quite well in terms of grossing rank, you can see that Nintendo actually has another massively missed opportunity on their hands. Um, one thing with the controls, like the generic controls are actually fine. It's the drift controls that became a huge internet meme and such a massive issue. But they made this the default choice. They made the, the most awkward turning situation the most or the, the default choice. So just questionable design decisions through, through there as well as through their first time user experience. Um, going to the subscription thing, this actually goes back to what we discussed last week. So I definitely say if you haven't listened to our podcast last week, our Apple Arcade has made a $5 a month subscription equivalent to about 100 quality games. They've devalued that content as well as set the bar very, very high for other devs. This is hindering anybody to actually create a MTX field subscription without massively undervaluing itself. Um, but regardless, the MKT subscription is, the actual contents are pretty questionable. Locking real play this kind of like 200 cc in the subscription goes back to this like try before you buy models um, same kind of crap as mario run and it really doesn't support the loop overall um, especially not investing a lot in communication about how this subscription brings real value so then that really leads to that big question mark of am i going to buy apple arcade or am i going to buy this subscription um, besides the controls the other red flag here is obviously economy and progression it's actually very, very shallow and very linear. And any depth that they actually have feels really, really tacked on. Um, I, I can see how they came up with this, but I, I, I just don't agree with how they, they built it. Because um, they wanted to keep the restriction of keeping the core gameplay as competitive as possible. So there's no power progression, despite no real multiplayer. And then they shift to a point economy that's straight and linear. And then it leads to upgrades and duplicates being absolutely useless in this gotcha economy. Like it's, I, I got a, a, a duplicate, which gave me progress towards upgrading my character, which gave me a 2% increase in a chance that something cool happens in the game that doesn't really matter. Like it was just, it's so, so worthless. And yeah, it leads to a gotcha component that has no width or depth. And then it leads to pricing, which is so outlandish that it counters that kind of shallow economy. 
Um, actually spending money in this game feels really, really poor because of just how expensive it is given the value that you're getting. Um, but yeah, we talked about this back when we actually previewed the game. Uh, we, we, we spotted a lot of those red flags um, and they should have taken a more proven economy for this. And I think Space Ape, Rovio, QQ Speed all have better options than this. So it's just another example of Nintendo trying to innovate in their meta, and it really is just going to be blowing up in their face. Fire Emblem is the one that they actually followed the formula, and it's the last standing. But yeah, Eric, rip, rip it apart. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Are they out of their collective minds here? I mean, Jesus, like four ninety nine sub for one game. I mean, they're out, clearly out of touch with like the reality of this market, and particularly after Apple Arcade, which, I, I, as we said last time, is completely devalued content in an epic scale um uh, particularly on the premium side and the indie side but you know what's worse about this game and the reason i want to take back my upside and forecast from 100 to 150 million is that the game sucks right i mean that's what i thought they'd get right you know like how in the hell can they make a game that has been made before by many people when the controls are terrible right and even the default controls I, i think those are terrible as well like People have done it before. Angry Birds. I mean, hell, even Robio, which can't like make a game to save their lives, made a pretty good <laughs> racing game. You know, like it is unbelievable. I, I want to get back my revision. I'm going to say if they do 100 million on this game, I'm going to be shocked, right? Because what's going to happen is that they are going to get insane amounts of of, uh, of people leaving this game. They're going to try this game. It doesn't work, and so they're not going to retain Jack, right? So they're not even going to have an audience to to monetize um so here's what i think happened on this one this is what i think and i don't know anything really but i think clearly management has no idea what free-to-play models are all about like there's besides um you know the one game that's doing quite well everything else has been an absolute train wreck right uh fire emblem so i think they're just fundamentally getting bad advice from people internally you know and when they saw what was going on with like their closed beta with this game and the model wasn't working they decided to put in a subscription model, which is the soup du jour out there right now as, as a way of monetizing your audience, but it's completely misunderstood and, and, and nonsensical on layering in these subscription models on games that don't monetize. It makes no sense, okay? And so, you know, then the media is, re- is supporting this, right? They're talking about how great the subscription model is. It's going to reinvent the monetization model. But the, the, reason, the, the reason that free-to-play exists is because subscription models were too hard to make people pay for, right? And that's what happened with a lot of the MMOs in the, in the history of this gaming industry. And that's why it started happening in, 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 in mobile, because the premium model wasn't working, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, this is all ass backwards. And... Nintendo fell into this trap of, you know, chasing the rainbows and unicorns of subscription. And, and this is what we get, a piece of crap game that has no business model that is going to be a huge missed opportunity for Nintendo. Um, so, I again, I think the churn on this game is going to be apocalyptic. I think that we will not see people come back to this game. They can get their 200 million downloads. But if they do 100 million, I, I, I'll be shocked. I'll be absolutely shocked if they can, if they can get to that high. Unless... But even if they were to come out with new content, actually PvP, yeah, the fact that there is no PvP mode is another one that blows my mind. Like, that's the whole point of Mario Kart, right? Ah, it's like, how idiotic can people be on this stuff, you know? And 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 this huge missed opportunities for Nintendo over and over and over again. It's like, they should just give up on mobile, you know? 
I think fundamentally, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Anything else to add? Wow. I don't know how you come back from that. <laughs> I just had to say that's what I was, I was hoping there would be something on subscription or something that would, would have Eric going off. So uh, that was, that was definitely worth the price of admission. Yeah, I, I don't want to follow that. So, uh, why don't we... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, but yeah, let's move on. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is expected to be the U.S. best-selling title of 2019. Always a safe bet. Not, not a real like leap of faith here. <laughs> but I agree 100%. That this game is going to be the biggest game of the year, and likely bigger than last year. Uh, you know, despite a really strong launch with the most popular IP for um, Call of Duty last year with Black Ops, the game really did not take off kind of as expected. It did well, don't get me wrong, but part of the problem was there was no single player. Uh, the visuals were a little bit lackluster, and they didn't really have as a good of co-op mission gameplay. Um, they instead used the, uh, the zombie thing, which is popular, but I think the co-op is kind of what people are looking for. So basically, Modern Warfare is the answer to kind of everything that the, the, the company, uh, the uh, audience really wanted from last year. And again, boots on the ground, better graphics with the new engine, co-op story content, as well as the robust uh, multiplayer. And then also, I think they'll include some kind of battle royale or expansion of the battle royale, which will likely be free to play and, you know, around that time frame. So this is the real deal. This is like the game that people want. And so super bullish from my perspective. Um, so the one other thing that, well, from a, from a, <laughs> so from, from a business perspective though, I still don't think they've kind of figured out this whole free to play model on, 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 uh, on their Call of Duty franchise. I think they've done a great job of monetizing this audience with map packs and free to, uh, sorry, map packs and, and um, what do you call it? And, you know, and, and that premium stuff, but their, their monetization design is still, has an opportunity to uh, improve uh, their bottom line just in general. Because I don't think they've actually improved the monetization per user over the years all that much. Because I think historically, their, their season pass and map packs have monetized extremely well. And they've kind of like pulled away from that and now are starting to do the microtransaction stuff, which works, but doesn't work as well as it could. And so what I think, Generally speaking, if they were to create a secondary or a third or fourth mode that was pay to win, pay to progress, and piss, they would piss off a lot of the people in the audience, but that actually could unlock huge amounts of spend for this game. I don't know if they'll ever do that because I just don't think they fundamentally want to do that. But I think that would be the way of kind of unlocking a lot more spend out of these, these audiences and frankly, keeping players a lot longer. Because last year, I think they lost a lot of the audience to Apex and went back to Fortnite, et cetera. But, um, I think that would be could be a huge opportunity for them going forward. But super bullish on Call of Duty this year. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is there's basically no games coming out this year, right? There's nothing, not one shooter that's going to be competing against Call of Duty. So they basically have an open window to bring back their audiences. And so if if last year's game did 24, 23 million, this is probably going to do like 26 to 28 million units, I would say. So pretty pretty good year for them, I think, for Activision. Probably the only bright and shiny spot for Activision this year, really. Um, Adam? Yeah. Well, I think Modern Warfare will be a massive success. Definitely will beat Black Ops 4. The question is, how much can it like build back up to its kind of heyday with Black Ops 2, Modern Warfare 3? 
Um, but yeah, from playing through the, the beta period, they've had an actually amazing beta period. Uh, lots of good press around the game. Um, you know, great gameplay changes. Personally, I, I really enjoy the, the changes that they made to weapon feel. Um, actually feels much more tactical and deliberate, which I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just is it's going back to that modern warfare theme, going back to that story. They're going to pull back a lot of players that would have churned over the last few years. Like it feels like going back to, um, you know, when Infinity Ward just launched Modern Warfare. Um, so I think they should be able to pull a lot of players back um, that may have actually churned and gone over to Rainbow Six Siege or CS:GO, um, those types of games. Um, but yeah, on on MTX, um, yeah, that speaking to controversy and plenty of players hating on what Eric wants to do. Uh, over the last week, they actually landed in some hot water when it leaked that they were going to be selling loot boxes at launch, which actually would lock weapons within them. <laughs> um, right? Like, <laughs> so Eric's seems, happy. But, okay. Yeah. So like last year, what they did was they pulled out the MTX and they started, sorry, the, the, the loot boxes and they put in uh, um, the battle pass. Yeah. The battle pass. And it was an epic fail, right? Stupid idea. I mean, I could have told you that from the get-go. And so they put back, they put back loot boxes almost immediately. So, yeah. Maybe maybe this they will have some upside on on the, on the monetization design early because I think it's smarter. I think loot boxers are smarter for Call of Duty, frankly. Than yeah. So with this one, it's because with Black Ops Four, they had loot boxes from day one, but they they really pushed this battle pass thing, and then they slowly like lean more and more into loot boxes. But they never had weapons in them. I think until mm. almost like late spring, summer, right? When typically Call of Duty would actually put weapons in their loot boxes by Christmas. Right to actually get the Christmas rush, um, but yeah, right for launch. So this, so in terms of trying to drive as much MTX revenue, I think Modern Warfare is going to be pushing it as hard as they can. By the way, and for, for the record, I actually played the beta on this, and I am freaking terrible at these games. I swear to God, at one point in time, I was competitive on PC multiplayer shooter. I was like top three, top four. I was getting my ass handed to me for an hour, and it was the most depressing, sad old man crest type moment in my life yeah. you should uh, just go back and play division two man that's just your that's well, no i know your, that's my jam your... like <laughs> single yeah single player rpg slow pace you know world of warcraft old man stuff you know yeah yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> sad it was a sad day my my son just like humiliates me every time i play Fortnite. i don't know i'm not living up to my gaming creds anymore <laughs> jk all right um well i think for me uh you know, I think we did a pretty good job of covering Call of Duty during one of our previous uh, podcasts, and in particular, covering some of the strategic issues, if anyone wants to go back to that. But one of those issues was really around their development model, right? And so, uh, you know, Activision had like this three by three strategy against Call of Duty, where they have uh, three studios developing on a three-year dev cycle. And so, you know, what we thought was with um, with the departure of the two co-founders from Sledgehammer, who founded a new studio called Visceral Games, uh, you know, I was under the impression that Sle Sledgehammer was shut down. But recently, we're seeing some news in terms of some of the folks uh, from Sledgehammer apparently being promoted. And then there was news that leaked about um, opening a new Melbourne, Australia branch. And so the question I have is, are they back to this three by three dev? Um, you know, sort of development model, or what is going on? Uh, any thoughts? Uh, no, I don't think. I think Sledgehammer is completely obliterated. I think maybe some remnants of that team um, are allowed to build something new, and maybe that's why they're expanding to Melbourne, which is interesting. But 
I think the rest of the team have been absorbed by Treyarch and Infinity Ward, and they will have a two-year dev cycle between those two studios. And I think, frankly, that next year's game is likely at risk, uh, given a shortened schedule and you know Treyarch picking up um, a lot of the the challenges of of getting a game out in that time frame. So, no, I don't think Sledgehammer is is back from the ashes. I think they're just you know trying to appease and keep as many people as they can. That's kind of my guess. Then, do, so you're, you're thinking they're going to a two by two, so two dev studios, two year dev cycle. Yeah, I mean, we talked cool? about this before. I mean, you think about it from the perspective of like ROI, right? It's like they didn't really improve sell through of units of Call of Duty by going by three by three, and the additional cost is pretty pretty expensive to to make it a three year dev cycle. So, from executive perspective, it's like, well, why don't we just go back to two by two? <laughs> you know, like if it's if it's the same result. And then we do it for less, right? I mean, and then they mismanaged Sledgehammer, and Sledgehammer just kind of rotted without a senior team. We've talked about this before. It's like, so I, I think they just had a lot of challenges that they had to work through, and this is what they end up with. And you know, they they put a positive spin on it, right? They're more efficient. They're centering on tools and technologies that make it easier to make games. It's just all poppycock. It's just nonsense that they're trying to you know talk around the fact that they kind of destroyed the studio. Um, and and are forced to kind of do what they need to do to get these games out on time. So that's okay. my thinking anyway. All right, uh, next article. How Greenest Free Fire competes with Fortnite and PUBG Mobile. And so this article was from uh, VentureBeat, actually from a while back from April. So, but um, in this article, there's a guy by the name of Adam Blacker from Aptopia who did a study of the top three games in 2018. And he found that uh, Garena Free Fire was number three, and interestingly, most of the users in, in Free Fire actually came from Brazil. And so Adam reached out to the Free Fire guys and asked them about sort of their strategy. But I had that some Garena stats from the article at that time. And so at that time, they had 350 million registered users, 100 million active players in Q4 of 2018. And um, as mentioned, uh, according to Aptopia anyway, Brazil was the biggest market at about 29% of the game's fourth quarter revenue in 2018. And some of the key differences um, about Garena when he um, interviewed the, the, the Free Fire guys, when, when Adam interviewed the Free Fire guys, was that um, that the Free Fire was actually made specifically for mobile, uh, unlike, for example, Fortnite. And uh, one of the Garena producers suggests that, uh, for example, some of the things that they did was uh, to make the build size a lot smaller. So the build size for Free Fire is actually 400 megabits, uh, megabytes at that time compared to over one gig for Fortnite and PUBG Mobile. And they also really spent a lot of time making sure that it runs smoothly on almost, on almost any device, whereas you know, Fortnite in particular only runs on pretty high-end devices. And the other thing that they mentioned is that the game also embraces local cultures, integrating like real-world events like Carnival in Brazil or Songkran in Thailand. And they also use market-specific monetization strategies. And again, um, Damien, these guys are like right in your backyard, right? So I wanted to act, actually maybe open up with, with you in terms of, do you have any insights on, you know, sort of what drives Free Fire to do so well? Um, so yeah, I mean, Greena is, is based in, in Singapore. Um, I don't have uh, a lot of actually detail on what kind of is driving Free Fire specifically. I mean, Free Fire um, 
was uh, kind of a unique uh, title for them in that they developed it. Um, Garena has traditionally been uh, largely a regional publisher for Southeast Asia and then kind of Taiwan, um, largely by Tencent. So like their start was actually uh, through League of Legends. Um, so Tencent kind of um, provided the license for that. Uh, and then if you look at kind of their roster of games, right, like they, you know, they're, they're, they tend to have all the major Tencent games for, um, for Southeast Asia and Taiwan, and they get the licensing for that. Um, I think given that they are, you know, they develop this game um, themselves uh, and for, you know, Southeast Asia, uh, you can look at, you know, kind of how Free Fire has done uh, as well, like in India. So, you know, understanding that, uh, what types of devices are prevalent there, you know, which tend to be kind of more mid or low range Android phones and that sort of thing. Um, what Garena has typically been really good at is, uh, you know, they set up local shops. Uh, they do uh, a lot of live ops. They do a lot of kind of localized events, uh, community work, um, and also uh, kind of esports. Um, and so I think for Southeast Asia and Taiwan, they really are the, the strongest uh, mobile publisher. They're kind of the experts in the market. For LATAM, uh, to be honest with you, like I think they're figuring that out as well. Um, I, that hasn't been traditionally until the last, I think, couple of years, um, a set of countries that they have focused on. I think there are similarities in kind of player behaviors and, and again, kind of the devices and the types of games uh, or the constraints of those games. Um, but uh, honestly, the, the kind of expansion into to Latin America um, is, you know, like it, it's a bit of a surprise for us, um, but we do know like the team has been traveling down there. They've been asking us um, for kind of context and information for LATAM um, and they're clearly doing really well there, so. Yeah, I, I, Green is like mind blowing. It's just kind of a mystery to me. You know, they have 400 million in downloads and about 400 million in revenue. Most of the revenue is being driven by countries that historically just don't monetize at all. Like top, you know, Brazil, for instance, 75 million downloads and 138 million in revenue. I mean, I think I, I could do the analysis, up, you know, quickly, but like I, that must at least double that market from a revenue perspective for games. I would think. I don't know. I have to go look into that. But um, and then in Mexico, 32 million downloads, 44 million in revenue. In Thailand and Indonesia, <laughs> the next two biggest. I mean, these. These are the small, small markets from a monetization perspective. All these markets generate tons of downloads, but they don't just, they never monetize. And you compare this to Fortnite, right? Where 75% of the revenue is being driven by tier one English countries like US, Great Britain, Australia, and Canada. Um, Brazil represents 0.5%. And Brazil, Mexico is 1.5% or $8 million. In Thailand and Indonesia, it's less than 0.1%, right? So they're clearly doing something in these markets um, that, is separating their games. And I think we already mentioned that the fact that it's much smaller footprint and less uh, power required. So you can do use lower end phones, that's one thing. Uh, but they've also must have, as he said, set up some kind of like localized content and um, live ops stuff in these territories, uh, I would imagine. But uh, I was so perplexed by this, I actually reached out. So I'm actually talking to someone from Garena next week or uh, this Wednesday. So if I get anything back, um, from them, I'll let you know. But I will say that looking at the chart, it, it seems like they've peaked. They, it seems to be rolling over a little bit um, where they've kind of hit this like saturation point um, by the charts. So I don't know if they're going to be able to continue to grow the way they have in the, in the past. 
uh, unless they choose to expand outside of the territories that they're in now. Um, but overall, I think it's a phenomenal success for them. And, and what I didn't know is that C is a publicly traded company. They have actually an ADR. So it's Greener, they changed their name to CSEA. Um, and so some of my clients are actually interested in this, this thing. So I'm looking into it a little bit more. But uh, anyway, very, very fascinating story of penetration into markets that I never thought would monetize. So and it's probably understated as well. I mean, for some of these markets in Southeast Asia, I'm not as sure about Brazil, but um, for Vietnam, uh, for India, for places like Indonesia, um, you know, they're all alternative app stores. They got to work with local payment processors. Um, and if that's something that's uh, similar to LATAM, that's probably also, right. um, you know, something that they they have a skill set around. Cool. I mean, could they be monetizing the uh, game off, off uh, similar to what Tinder is doing and, and monetizing it off the Play Store? Uh, like in places like Vietnam, uh, definitely. I mean, there's there's a lot of these alternative apps. I mean, it's kind of like China uh, in a way. And again, yeah. they get a lot of kind of guidance and support um, from Tencent. So they, you know, I assume they, they understand how to navigate that and, uh, and set up the payment infrastructure for that sort of thing. C in general is is a pretty interesting structure. So as you dig into this, I mean, their big kind of focus now is their e-com app in Southeast Asia called right. Shopee. So they've kind of traditionally been this and they've made a lot of their, their money on PC games and, and League of Legends largely. Right. Then shifted into, uh, you know, getting the, the licenses for large, like most of the top 10 cent mobile games uh, and built a business off that. Uh, and now they're just aggressively going into this e-com space, but it's kind of the mobile biz, the mobile games business um, that is seems to be funding most of that for right well, now. Well, well, the irony is that the revenue, two thirds of the revenue, is e-commerce stuff, but like the majority of the profits are coming from this Garena game. <laughs> so yeah. it's like if they they're they're in a they could be in a tough spot if Garena stops growing, right? Because I don't know if they can replicate the success with something else, but maybe they can. So that's part of the reason to look at into it. All right, and to close us out, the last article, Tencent will become Funcom's largest shareholder. And so Tencent announced acquiring 29% of Norway-based Funcom shares, uh, making it the largest shareholder in Funcom who are an independent game developer and publisher. And Funcom developed games like Conan Exiles, Mutant Year Zero, Road to Eden, Anarchy Online, The Secret World, and The Longest Journey. And Funcom is currently developing a sandbox game set in the Dune universe, and and which will overlap with the Dune movie set to release in December of 2020. So, if I'm being honest, I think Tencent's investment in Funcom is somewhat notable, but not really super interesting. However, since we have Damien here with us, I thought it might be interesting to take a bit of a higher level strategic perspective and just ask Damien about Tencent's investment strategy. Um, so from what we've seen, it seems like, uh, so Damien, it does seem like this kind of follows the Tencent pattern of taking sort of minority positions in you know, a lot of different game studios globally. And from what I'm hearing, they don't seem to interfere very much with their operations, but may maybe you've got a little bit more insight into sort of what, you know, sort of Tencent's, what, what you're seeing from a Tencent perspective in terms of their strategy and, and what you think some of their ambitions and motivations might be. Yeah, so look on this Funcom one, um, you know, to be totally honest with you, I mean, I, I was reading about it when you sent the article over, so I wasn't even aware they were, uh, they were putting money into these guys. Uh, and that's, you know, 
I don't even know, I know I'm not familiar with Funcom. Um, and look, like Tencent, uh, I'm not an expert, so I can't say like from an insider's point of view what their actual strategy is. I can uh, give a little bit of context on, you know, the net of it is uh, from a gaming perspective, they kind of want to be into everything. Um, and they look at um, both self-development. So they have a number of large uh, kind of key studios um, that are huge. They have a huge number of, of developers that are kind of working on their own titles. So those are kind of like owned and operated by Tencent. Um, they also then have kind of a developer publisher uh, sort of network. So they have a bunch of developers that they uh, kind of partner with where they have, you know, visibility into pipeline where they're probably providing some guidance and um, resources into that, um, but are not necessarily owned or inside of Tencent. Um, and then they're obviously going out and looking at either licensing games from studios or just buying them and acquiring them in full um, or taking stakes in them. So it's kind of like anything to do with games. I mean, Tencent has all these various teams uh, with pretty wide remits. A lot of them are, again, kind of, I would say, overlapping or, or competing with each other. Um, and they're just, you know, they just go broad. Uh, I would say in talking to, uh, to the team, and I think if you talk to, you know, folks from Supercell and Riot, um, even Epic, um, they are, you know, pretty hands off, right? They, they don't immediately dig in and try and take over uh, the companies or the way that these companies are operating. Um, so I think, uh, you know, like the Funcom guys were saying that they were, you know, they were pretty happy and they were excited about having Tencent come in and they felt pretty comfortable with that. Um, and that is what we, you know, what we kind of observe from the outside, but largely, I mean, look, Tencent is just kind of, they have like a five or six prong strategy with games and anything that they think can make work. I mean, they'll, they'll put money against it or they'll put people against it and, and see how it goes. And so Damien, it does seem like. Tencent's really investing in any sort of video games company that achieves some amount of scale sort of globally. But what do you think the, the end goal for them is? Is it just to like get information or why, why do you think they're kind of adopting this kind of a strategy of, you know, it's kind of investing in companies at scale and just kind of being very passive about their investments? Um, to be honest, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that might, again, this is, you know, very speculative from, from my perspective. Um, one, I mean, they, they just want to be the dominant gaming company in the world. Uh, so I think, you know, that's important to them and kind of being involved or having some form of ownership of that. Um, part of it as well is uh, in China, uh, in particular, like gaming companies and the valuations and the multiples that they trade at tend to be um, higher than on other exchanges. So if they are, you know, kind of bringing these acquisitions in, the value that they get uh, from the uh, from the revenue that that also then brings into their uh, income saves. And I'm not actually sure exactly how Supercell shows up um, for them uh, or or how Epic does um, based on kind of like the partial or or full ownership there. Um, but I mean, I I couldn't tell you much more beyond that in terms of exactly what they what they're trying to do. They they are learning um, from from the companies. Like I know I, the Supercell relationship began and kind of what's been shared by the Tencent team and what we've heard through uh, our teams that work with Supercell, that relationship seems to be um, kind of mutually symbiotic. Uh, they are trying to understand like how Supercell markets games and how they develop IP and, and all of that. Um, 
but again, didn't seem like they're going in and trying to, uh, you know, kind of take over anything and, and Supercell still has a lot of autonomy there. So it seems to be working pretty well in that regard. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't think about the, the valuation arbitrage issue as well, but yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Well, that's, that's why you started to see like, uh, you know, random like chemical petrochemical companies <laughs> buying uh, like, I think it was Outfit 7 or the Talking oh, yeah. Tom company. Uh, you know, I think it was another kind of random industry company that was picking or trying to pick up AppLovin. Um, yeah, I mean, there's it's just the valuation and kind of gaming <laughs> companies in, in China are just, are just valued differently. I mean, that's why Netmarble was uh, acquired uh, Kabam back in the day, right? Multiple arbitrage. Yeah. Um, Funcom seems like a weird investment, though, for Tencent, to be honest. Um, Usually they invest in like really like genre leading profitable companies like Supercell or Riot. Funcom just seems to have been struggling for years. You know, they have a suite of mediocre, you know, kind of MMOs like Conan and Secret World. And frankly, I thought the Conan license was a bad idea from the start. Although I played the game, I thought it was pretty good. Um, but I'm a huge MMO junkie, as you know. Uh, but they must see perhaps something in this Dune game that they're working on. I haven't really seen anything on it. I didn't have time to go... <coughs> look at it but maybe there's something there there uh that they see but then you also have to keep in mind that this this company is tiny it's like 134 million dollar market cap with only like 33 million in revenue it's and the investment was like a 40 million dollar investment and for 10 cent that is like less than mice nuts you know that's like flea nuts um so i really find it hard to believe that really 10 cents all that interested in their current portfolio and perhaps they see something in dune that or maybe the company just needed money to finish out this development, and and this was their best bet uh, for the best uh, best economics. I don't know. I don't really haven't been covering Funcom for a long time, so we'll see when it ends up happening. We'll see what this Dune game is like, and maybe we'll get another MMO out of it, perhaps. But we'll see. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up for Twig Fifty. Any concluding thoughts from from any of you guys? All right. Well, there we have it. Twig 50. See y'all later. Bye. Bye-bye.